Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. Well, it is 20 days before Christmas. For children, that will pass by rather slowly, but for us adults who are preparing for Christmas, it will go rather quickly. I have never been one to count down the days to an upcoming event. You know, some people know the days. They know how many days are left until they retire. They know how many days are left until uh, their wedding or their graduation or whatever great event is coming up. But others like me just kind of have a vague idea. We don't really sit down and count the days. But this year, I am going to count down to Christmas because that is the title of this brief series that I am going to be doing over the next three weeks. But I'm going to compromise. I'm not going to count down the days. I'm just going to do it by weeks. So this morning, we are three weeks away from Christmas. So how are you feeling? Well, I can't speak for everyone, but I'm going to try. It's three weeks before Christmas, and I'm anxious. Anxiety or worry is, of course, a problem not just at this time of year, but throughout the year. For some, indeed, it is a crippling problem that often leaves them unable to perform the most routine or mundane of tasks. For others, anxiety is a silent battle that they face alone, never bothering to tell anyone else what they are going through. Some even boast about their worry, taking it to mean that they care about things more than other people do. You've heard people say it, or maybe you've said it yourself. Well, I'm just a worrier. Or I worry every time my kids go out of the house, as if what loving mother or father would not worry about their kids in this day and age. And then, of course, we talk as if anxiety or or worry is a virtue, rather than, as we'll see, the lack of faith that in reality the Bible says it is. Yes, the Bible does speak to this issue. It speaks to it on a rather regular basis. And of course, all of us battle this to some degree or another at various times in our lives. We've all had times when we are filled with anxiety. Perhaps that time is now with everything that must happen over the next three weeks for you to have that perfect Christmas, which of course you're not going to have the perfect Christmas anyway, but you think you will. And so with all that must happen over the next three weeks, perhaps you are filled with anxiety, and I want us to look and see what Jesus has to say about it, with the goal being that perhaps this year we can have a peaceful Christmas rather than an anxious one. So turn with me to a portion of the Sermon on the Mount as found in Matthew chapter 6, where we will see very clearly that we are commanded not to be anxious. And therefore, when we are, it is not a loving virtue. It is a faithless sin. But like any sin, it can be overcome through the power of the Holy Spirit and in obedience to what Jesus calls us to do. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 25. This is Jesus speaking. 
Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all of these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Overcoming anxiety always starts, in fact, overcoming anything always starts by admitting that there is a problem and so we are going to start this morning by admitting that we are anxious. Now, up until this point, I've been painting with a rather broad brush, just using the word anxiety or worry, but I do need to get a little more specific because not all kinds of concern, not all kinds of anxiety are sinful. In fact, there is some anxiety that if we do not have it, that in of itself is sinful. For example, we ought to be concerned about the spiritual state of those who do not know Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. And if we do not have concern for those people, that in of itself is a sin. We ought to be concerned, we ought to have anxiety about our own spiritual growth and the spiritual growth of other believers. In fact, Paul said of himself that in spite of all of the other things or on top of the other things that he had going on in his life, he said there was the daily pressure on me for concern for all the churches. That word that is translated concern there is the same word that we have here for anxiety or anxious. So Paul acknowledged that he was anxious. He was concerned over the spiritual condition of people in the church. And so not all anxiety is equal, though, of course, we tend to lump all of ours into the good category. We tend to assume that any anxiety we have is, of course, the good kind and not the sinful kind, which is why I'm starting with the need to admit that some of our anxiety is not the good kind, but is indeed the sinful kind. Furthermore, I'm not calling on us to go to the opposite extreme and have a who cares attitude about everything in life. Our, our overcoming our anxiety should not lead to laziness or a lack of preparation. 
This is not a passage that tells us that we are not to plan or not to prepare for our future. There is ample evidence in other scripture that we are to do those things. So let's not get out of balance one way or the other. And balance is the key term here. Balance is key in so many areas of our life. The word anxious is found in its various forms at least six times in this passage, depending upon what version you are looking at. So it is clearly the focal point of what Jesus is dealing with here. And it is a good reminder that sometimes we need to hear things more than once before we actually get it through our heads and understand it. And so we see here that he states that we shouldn't be anxious about the necessities of life. And he summarizes this with two issues, food and clothing. Though it is certainly not limited to that, that is what Jesus talks about. We might expand it to other necessities of life, such as our jobs, our families, the economy, our health, the health of those that we love. Any and all of these and others are things that we might be anxious about. In fact, you might be anxious about whether or not you're going to get that specific present that you just have to have this time of year. And so there is a host of things that we can be anxious about, even though we shouldn't be. We may not be anxious about whether we have food. Most of us have enough food in our homes. But we are sometimes anxious about the kind of food we are going to have. That is, can I afford to go to this particular restaurant? We, not, we may not be anxious about having clothing. All of us have it. In fact, we've said before that most of us have more than we need and need to get rid of some. But we might be anxious about the brand name of clothing that we have because we've got to have that specific brand name in order to keep our image. So let's just admit that sometimes we are anxious about the basic necessities of life whether we are going to have them or not. As I age, I will admit that I am becoming more and more anxious about whether I'm going to have enough to retire on someday or what is enough. How much do I need to accumulate in order to retire and when is that going to be? And the fact of the matter is nobody seems to be able to give me a good answer for that. And so I have to ask questions like, how much longer is Tracy going to have to work after I retire in order to provide for me so that I can sit around or play golf? These are serious questions, though you're laughing at them, that we are discussing, and she already has given me an answer to that. But no one seems to know the exact formula, and so it brings anxiety. Am I going to have enough? And when am I going to get there? Which bleeds over into the second element. We are anxious about God's provisions. We are not only anxious about the basic necessities of life, but we are anxious about the provisions of God. Is he going to provide the things I need? I know he has in the past, and I'm confident he is in the present. But my concern is, my anxiety is, is he going to continue to do that in the future? And when we ask all of these questions and live with anxiety in these areas, verse 30 makes it very clear what the problem is, and that is we have a lack of faith. This kind of anxiety is de demonstrating a lack of faith. The animal kingdom, which is one of the illustrations that Jesus gives, and we will get there in just a moment, but the animal kingdom is focused on survival. Their biggest needs are food and shelter. 
or what we might call clothing here, but an, an animal doesn't have clothing, but they need food and they need shelter. And every day is taken up with making sure that these things are available. But not so for us. We are made in the image of God, which means our purpose for living goes well beyond these basic necessities of life. Our minds and our uh, attitudes and our approach to life should not be focused on these basic things because we can trust that God is going to provide. Jesus says that very plainly here uh, in this text. And that we are much more valuable to God than birds and flowers. Our life as believers is to be focused on the pursuit of God, as we'll see in our conclusion, and enjoying who God is. And again, we'll return there in a moment. So it's got to begin by admitting that there are times in our life, maybe it's not this week, but maybe it is, when we are anxious about the basic necessities of life and the provisions of God. And if we're willing to admit that, where do we go from here? Jesus tells us not to be anxious. A large part of the reason we are anxious is because we are not in control. You see, I have no control over the future of our economy. And that is why I worry about my retirement. Because I don't know what the future is going to hold and I don't have any control over it. I have some control over my health in terms of whether or not I exercise or, or whether I eat right. But most of our health is out of our control. Some of it is a function of heredity, that is the genes that are passed down to us. Other things just appear to randomly happen. Doesn't matter how good of shape you've kept yourself in, you might wind up with something. And so that's why we're anxious, because we are not in control. But that's actually a good thing. Because we can see, secondly, that we are to acknowledge that God is in control. You see, once we admit that we are anxious over some of these things, we must move to the second step and acknowledge that God is in control. And rightly understood, it is far better for him to be in control of your life and mine than it is for me to be in control of those same things. Now, where do we see God's control in this text? Well, we see it in the two illustrations that Jesus gives. He was a master at using everyday things of life to teach spiritual truth. So first he reminds us that God provides for the birds. And then he says, aren't you much more valuable than they are? Now picture this. Jesus is teaching on the hillside. That's why it's called the Sermon on the Mount. We went to Israel a few years back and we went to the location where they think he might have taught there. And so he's on the hillside and as he's teaching, perhaps a flock of birds flies past as he's teaching, giving him a unique opportunity to say, why don't you consider the birds of the heavens? Look as they are flying by. And then he takes that and teaches a spiritual truth. Maybe some of you are bird watchers. You have a bird feeder in your backyard and you enjoy sitting there and watching the birds come and feed on a daily basis. And if you do watch those birds, you do know that they do come back day after day after day because they are not capable of planting their own crops, harvesting those crops, and then storing those crops for a future period of time. They must come back day after day in order to get their daily bread. They must depend upon God. Now, they don't understand that, of course. They just know there's a feeder in your backyard. But our text tells us that God provides for them day after day. Now again, we need to caution a balance here. 
Just because we are to trust or just because the birds trust others to provide for them doesn't mean that they do not work. We have a saying, you know it, the early bird gets the worm. What does that mean? It means that a bird has to go out in search of his food. He doesn't just sit on a limb and wait for it to fall into his mouth unless he's a baby bird. And then the mother bird is constantly coming back and forth and feeding the baby birds. And my point is simply this, God provides for them, but he does so through their concerted effort. So Jesus says, don't you understand that you are much more valuable than a bird? And if God is going to provide for these lesser creatures, then can't we trust that he's going to provide for us? We who are his children, created in his image and redeemed by his son, can't we trust that God is going to provide for us? It is a classic argument from the lesser to the greater. If, if God is going to provide for these lesser creatures and do so on a daily basis, then can't we trust that God is going to provide for us? So the next time you're sitting at your kitchen table and you're looking out that window and there's that bird feeder and the birds come in to feed, let it be a reminder to you that if God provides for them, he is going to provide for you as well. I love how the psalmist put it. He said, I've been young and now I'm old, yet I have never seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed or his children begging for bread. Which means there is no reason to be anxious because we can acknowledge that God is in control. The second illustration that Jesus gives involves flowers. And here again, you can relate to what Jesus is talking about. We have some beautiful flowers here this morning. Our uh, decorating team has done a great job putting all of this together. But you know the thing about flowers? As beautiful as they are, they do not last. Many of you will take these home on Christmas Eve and you will put them in your home and they won't last there. They will eventually die, probably more quickly than you want. Every year, Tracy puts flowers out in pots all over our front stoop and all over our back patio. And here recently, she's been hauling those pots in every evening that it was getting really cold because she wanted to preserve them for a few days longer to enjoy the beauty. And so we would have towels on the kitchen floor and we'd haul these pots in only to haul them back out the next day just to prolong it for a few days. But now we've given up. They're dead. In fact, yesterday, I pulled all of those flowers out of their pots and put them in trash bags. Now, why, would, why do we go through all of that? Because they're beautiful. But we know they don't last. And that's the illustration that Jesus is giving here. If God so clothes the flowers of the field, making them as beautiful as you are looking at this morning, knowing that they are temporary, and in a few short weeks, these flowers will begin to wet, uh, wilt, the, the, the leaves will fall off, and eventually they will wind up in the dumpster. Now, he says they'll wind up in the fire because they use the dead flowers for fuel. But the point is that if God goes to all of this trouble over temporary flowers, don't you think you can trust him to provide and clothe you? Again, the conclusion from these illustrations is that when we are anxious over these things, it is simply a sign of our lack of faith. Nature should teach us that God provides. Scripture reveals to us that God provides. And so when we are anxious, we are simply testifying that we do not believe that. 
that somehow God is not in control of our lives and therefore cannot be trusted. Now, I know you don't consciously think that. I know in the midst of your anxiety, you don't think, I can't trust God to provide for me. But the reality is, that is what you are thinking and what you are living out. Remind yourself next time when you grow anxious. Whatever it is, in whatever area of life you are anxious about, remind yourself that you are displaying a lack of faith. And on top of that, the text tells us that your worry, your anxiety is not going to help anyway. In fact, most doctors would tell you that it hurts. The text here says, who can add a single hour to his life? If you have the King James, it it translates that a little bit differently. It says, add one cubit to his stature. That is by worrying, can you add to your height or can you add to your length of life? Both of those are legitimate translations based on what the word used here. But either way, the conclusion is the same. Anxiety is not going to help you. So get rid of it by trusting that God is in control of all things. And so we move on to our third point. Our third point in this text is the need to accept the promises of God. This in many ways is the antidote. Or maybe I should use a more current word. This is the vaccine for anxiety. This is how we get rid of it. We accept accept the promises of God. Instead of being anxious, revealing your lack of faith, put your faith in the promises of God. And what promises, what do we see here? Well, verse 32, he says very clearly, he knows what you need. Sometimes in our anxious moments, we wrongly believe that God has forgotten about us, that he doesn't know what we are going through, that he cannot see what we are enduring, that he is somehow busier doing other things and has has forgotten us. Make no mistake about it. God does know your needs. God does know your situation. He knows all about them. He knows more than you know. He knows your needs before you know your needs. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't pray. We should pray and tell God what we need. As long as we remember that when we pray and tell God what's on our heart, we're not giving God new information. He already knows that information. We are simply acknowledging our dependence upon him. In fact, if you were to drop down into chapter 7, you would find in this same Sermon on the Mount that we are encouraged to seek and to ask and given the promise that God will give us the things that we ask for. But in asking in our prayers, don't make the mistake that he doesn't know. He knows your situation in life much more intimately than you yourself know it. He knows your needs even before you know your needs. And he knows the difference between a need and a want. Which may just be the reason why you're not getting what you think you need. Because it's not what you really need. It's just what you want. And actually might do you more harm if you did get it. And God knows that as well. All of that to say God knows exactly what you need so you can have faith rather than anxiety. But it's not just the assurance that he knows your needs. There's also the promise here that he will provide for these needs. There are certainly people in our lives, people all around the world, that we see that they have tremendous needs. And we'd like to solve those needs and meet those needs, but we don't have the resources to do it. There are needs in the lives of your children or your grandchildren. And you would love as a parent or a grandparent to meet those needs. But maybe you're just not able to do it. You don't have the capability. You don't have the resources. 
We, have, uh, we don't have unlimited resources. So even as a church, when there are all kinds of needs around us, we have to weigh those needs and we have to decide which needs take priority in order to meet the needs of greatest priority because we do not have unlimited resources. Which means inevitably that some needs simply do not get met. But God is under no such constraints. Look at the end of verse 33. Here is the promise. Seek first the kingdom of God. We're going to come back to that because that's a condition. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And here's the promise. All these things will be added to you. Again, we're going to come back to the condition in the first half of that verse. But the second half is a promise that God will meet our needs. Now, here also is a classic case in which we need to make sure that we keep this verse in its context. Because when it says that he will give you all of these things, what things is he talking about? He's talking about what he's already been dealing with, and that is the basic necessities of life. He's not saying you'll have anything you want. You can take that verse and pull it out of context and make it say that, but that's not what he says. We have to keep it in the context, and in the context, he's talking about the basic necessities of life. But don't diminish the promise either, because it's clearly a wonderful promise from God that because he is our creator and our redeemer, he is also our provider. We can trust and accept his promises by faith, so there's no need to be anxious about all of these things. Which brings us to our last point. For all of this to actually happen, we've got to go back to that condition in verse 33. And that condition tells us we need to analyze our priorities. The first half, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Don't go to the second half of that verse like I did before looking at the first half. Because you've got to meet the condition of the first half in order to enjoy the promise of the second half. And the first half tells us that we are to seek as our priority the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now, what does that mean? Well, number one, it does not mean that we must strive in order to be saved. We know that we cannot be saved by our own effort. It is by the grace of God through our faith. It, neither does it mean that we must strive in order to keep our salvation once we do have it. Because we know that genuine believers are secure in their relationship with Christ. So what does this seemingly vague concept of the kingdom of God and his righteousness mean? Well, I think it's a general way of saying, it's a general way of talking about our spiritual life. That is that we are to focus our pursuit on knowing God and the things of God, and applying the knowledge that we have of God into our everyday lives, that ought to be our priority. Rather than focusing on the material aspects of life that tend to dominate our thoughts and pursuits, we are to place our value on the spiritual aspect of our life above all other things. Now, we tend to say that we do that. We tend to say that our spiritual life is the most important aspect of our lives. In fact, we say sometimes about someone who is trusted in Christ, who's made a decision to follow Christ, we say, you've just made the greatest decision you will ever make. But the truth of the matter is, we spend more of our time, more of our thoughts, and more of our pursuits on the things of the world, whether we're willing to admit it or not. Now, granted, again, balance we do have to make money. We do have to have jobs and we do have to buy things. We have to provide for our families and plan for our future. 
But it's also clear to me that the kingdom of God is simply not a high priority. And I'm talking about professing Christians. We know it's not a priority for those who don't know Christ, but I'm talking to believers. And I'm saying that I think it's abundantly clear that in the lives of many professing believers, the kingdom of God is not their priority. We say, well, how can you say that? How can you say that you know that? Because we invest our time, we invest our talents, we invest our resources in those things that are a priority, and I know that a large percentage of professing believers simply aren't doing that. Actions do sometimes speak louder than words, and that is clear within the kingdom of God. And notice that Jesus does not say that this is important. He does not say that this is a high priority. He says this is the priority. Seek first above all things. This is to be our greatest priority in life, to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It's not to be in our top ten. It's not to be in our top three. It is to be the highest priority of our life. And when we do that, the promise here is that God will provide all of those things that we need so that we do not have to have anxiety. Now, this also means the opposite. If you are filled with anxiety three weeks away from Christmas, it's a sure sign that you are not seeking the kingdom of God as your first priority. Which means, as my point suggests, it is a good time to analyze your priorities. To be honest with yourself about what is a priority in your life and to adjust it. And don't wait for the new year to adjust it. Don't say, well, I'll, I'll make some changes on January 1st. No, if you recognize that your priorities are out of order, let's change those and make those adjustments now. The truth of the matter is this is something we ought to constantly be doing on a regular basis because it's so easy for our priorities to get out of order. So start putting God first in your life, which involves spending time with him in prayer and, of course, reading his word. It means making his church a priority, not an option when there's nothing else left to do, but a priority. And it means actively pursuing a righteous and holy life. Those things that God says about us as believers that we are in position should be our pursuit in practice. Now, I realize that all of this is rather easy to say. But it takes consistent effort and work on our part to actually apply it. But the only other option is to remain filled with anxiety. And is that really what we want this time of year or any time of year? So why not give God's remedy a chance? I mean, Jesus says clearly here, do not be anxious. And if you'll seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, anxiety will flee away because you're trusting that God is going to provide. Now, it doesn't mean that our troubles are going to flee away. Look at the last verse. I mean, this is a strange way to end a section on anxiety. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Jesus does not say, if you'll seek the kingdom of God, your troubles will fade away. In fact, he says there's going to be enough trouble today that you don't need to borrow from trouble tomorrow. Because there's going to be trouble tomorrow, too. But you don't need to heap all of that onto today. So he's not promising that your problems are going to go away. But it is a clear pr a promise and reminder that pursuing the things of God, we can trust that God will provide for us, and therefore we don't have to be anxious.
Now, that doesn't mean that uh, we don't have to work. It doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. It's the sixth time in this verse that the word anxious is used. But we do have a God we can trust in the midst of our problems who is in total control. Now, I don't think anybody really wants to live in constant anxiety. I mean, whether it's this time of year or any time of year. But many people are simply resigned to it. It's just become a way of life. That's just who I am. I'm anxious. I'm worried all the time. But you don't have to be. Because Jesus says very clearly here that you don't have to be anxious. You don't need to be anxious. You're not supposed to be anxious. Instead, you're to trust him and you can find peace. Wasn't that part of the angelic message on the first Christmas when the shepherds were given the announcement of the birth of Jesus? They were praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. If that was the message of the first Christmas, we've strayed a long way to Christmases filled with anxiety. Our Christmases ought to be peaceful. We don't have to stay in an anxious state of mind. We can apply this text this morning as we are commanded to do and discover that anxiety can be replaced with the peace of God that passes all understanding. My hope for you this Christmas is peace rather than anxiety. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you this morning that we can have peace through Jesus Christ. That we were not meant to live in anxiety over the necessities of life or over the provisions of life. Because you as our loving Heavenly Father have promised to provide all of these things. So I pray that we would be honest and admit that we do lack faith sometimes. And as a result, we do become anxious. In admitting that, help us then to, to turn to you and trust that you are in control of our lives and accept the promises that you've given us, that you are going to provide when we have our priorities straight. Lord, I pray that every believer here this morning would do just that, that you would be our priority, that we would seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and watch as you give us all of those other things we've been so worried about. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing and you respond.